0: Hi, I'm Steve Joel. Thanks for tuning in. In this podcast series, we celebrate the people who influence the way we play, collect, read, paint, and just love 40K. I'm recording now and uh, I'll do so I'll do the big intro. I always do a big intro and then I always start with my favorite thing that I know about you. So we'll get underway with that and uh if there's anything along the way, just let me know. Is that okay?
1: Yeah, yeah I'm sure.
0: Today, hot on the heels of the biggest Warhammer event in the world. We talk to the man behind the biggest event in the UK and Europe, and he tells us exactly how it is. Okay. So we're
1: talking about 4,000 data points and literally two issues. It's, it's such a non, like, it, it seems to be a narrative that's driven by people that uh, don't have the personal experience to back it up.
0: Today's guest is also a play tester. And believe me, folks, I tried to get some stories, but that contract he signed with GW is tight.
1: It would be a disaster for me uh, from a business point of view um, to ever to ever breach um, my NDA. And so it's never been remotely challenging at all to keep my lips shut. Um,
0: <laughs> well, that's, no, good. that's
1: obviously not true for everyone.
0: <laughs> Before we start, Go like 40K Game Changers on Facebook. And if you like this episode, you can find every chat with every fantastic guest at 40KGameChangers.com. Please go check it out. Also want to do a shout out to the Frontline Gaming Network. On the subject of events, tickets are on sale right now for the Cherokee Open if you're still riding high from the LVO or maybe you couldn't go to the LVO this year. Get tickets to Cherokee at FrontlineGaming.org. Okay, that's the plague. Now on with the show. He is best known as the TO of England's biggest 40k event, the London GT. He's also been a playtester for Games Workshop for a while. He was the under-16 national champion in the UK. He's a fan of Roger Federer, and the man takes a great photograph as well. Zach Becker, welcome to Game Changers. How are
1: you? I'm very good. Thanks very much.
0: Listen, my uh, favourite thing that I know about you, this is how I always start. The favourite thing I know about you is that you worked at a Jamie Oliver restaurant and you met Jamie Oliver. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, um, I guess so. Um, I'm surprised you figured that one out. I'm not sure where that's posted online. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's um, a blast from the past for sure. It was uh, the Jamie's Italian chain, which became a sort of like global sensation and then dramatically went bust. All right. But I was working there um, in it's like pilot London branch. It was the third branch they opened and it was still a bit of a big deal. So we had lots of celebrities come through and stuff. Right. And it was the one that was local to Jamie himself. So he would come in from time to time.
0: Right. And you served him as entree or something.
1: I'd, I have a funny story about this actually. I, I was the footballer waiting at the table as the lead waiter on the table. And after their pasta the course, I was like wiping down the, the table because his um, young children had made a bit of a mess spilling some bolognese and his wife was heavily pregnant at the time and while I was wiping the table off my little sponge with the bolognese sauce on like missed the table and went on her belly so I like palmed a spaghetti sauce all over his <laughs> wife's belly um so that was a bit of a fiasco
0: way to make a good impression with the boss right yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's get on to 40K. That's why we're here. Let's go back in time to when you were, even further back to when you were 14 years old and you were crowned the England under-16 40K champ. I didn't even know that was a thing. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I guess it sounds a, a bit more sort of grandiose than it is, uh, or felt at the time at least. Um, I think our local store had tried to, or, or maybe it was a head office initiative, had tried to get, lots of the regular young players, um, up to Nottingham for like a weekend. So I was active on the tournament scene as it was, um, what, 18 years ago now. So, um, I was doing very well locally and they took us all up on a coach to Warhammer World. And then when we got there, we found out that like half of stores had bailed or they could only bring two or three people or whatever. So it was sort of like a, um, who you know, event because everyone there kind of knew each other because there wasn't that many events back then. So you would, you know, know people on a first sort of face to face basis already. And uh, yeah, I ended up playing my, my buddy from my store in the finals, and uh, the rest is history at the moment. But I still got the certificate somewhere. It was a bit of a <laughs> um, <laughs> NAF prize just getting a, a, you know, it was an Inkjet printed certificate that I had to buy my own frame for. <laughs> Um, but it was a nice, nice gesture
0: anyway. Yeah. Didn't get a box of toys or anything for winning that?
1: No, i literally got nothing and they never ran the event ever again. So it can't have been that much of a success (laughs) for them either.
0: Well, still it's nice to have that in the CV though. Right. I mean, the under 16 national champ is kind of, I don't know that I've never ever been a national, oh no. Well, other than public speaking, never been a national champ at anything. So that's, it's pretty impressive really. Um, yeah, thanks. for our for our American audience uh, going up on a coach uh, a coach is a bus I don't know I just want to make sure that everybody's clear what a coach is so uh, now how does a 14 year old get to tournaments around the country were, you, were your parents supportive of the plastic crack addiction
1: no um, well yes and no they were supportive of me um, regardless of sort of what esoteric way I chose to spend my time and um, I grew up in London um I guess what they call now like a free-range parenting situation so my my family was separated and I grew up with my mother um but we I was a five-minute walk from uh the center of the suburb that I lived in um and it was 20-minute connection to central London so I was sort of out and about doing my own thing when I was I guess, 11, I was taking myself to Games Workshop, playing games, and by 13, heading into town by myself. So, um, it really wasn't a big deal for me to to go to a city 300 miles away by myself.
0: Wow. That's pretty amazing. And it, well, I guess, again, something that people need to understand is that London has this incredible public transport system. So, You know, and you see uh, people 11, 12, 13 on that system all the time, on the tube or on the bus or whatever it might be. It's just one of the most interconnected places in the world. It's so good. So, yeah, you're able to do that, I guess. Um, And after that mighty peak of being the the champ, so then you keep on playing, and I guess you keep on doing well at tournaments and the tournament scene. Can you tell me about the post-14 up to sort of into your early 20s the tournament scene is just picking up yeah. and you're kind of getting into it there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting period because um, it's, I guess, the sort of around the same time that Adepticon kicked off, which was, you know, the sort of godfather of these events that are now dominating the world in terms of the profile of them. Um, back then, it was still very much uh, tournaments in scout huts and that sort of thing. Um, I was going to the ones that run localish to me so they were running sort of twice a year and that was about it really to be honest um i was a competitive player so i was playing against like the more competitive oriented people with my local scene and they were they tended to be um i would say like 18 to 25 when i was 13 so by the time i got up to be older they were sort of getting into that sort of marriage phase people get into and were playing less Right. so I ran out of people to play against um and that happened at the same time I was changing schools and going through my exams and all that stuff so I sort of fell out of the competitive scene and had all my gear and you know I would lug it from student house to student house and from apartment to apartment as I like as these sort of this period of my life went past and I remember getting to I was moving out of an apartment after I was in you know had my career my my sort of second career-based job, you know, my after university. And I had all this warhammer with me, and I was like, I've been lugging this from house to house to house, and I haven't used it in ages. I'm either going to bin it or I need to start using it again. So I looked, went on Google and looked up at, like what the local scene was like and found um, a, a brand-new club that had been open a couple of months, upstairs at a pub, and I rocked up to that and was like, all right, I've got to check out what this is because I haven't played a game in a couple of years I need to see um, if if people are normal at this club. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit weird. You know, I'm always a little bit nervous to see like what the vibe's going to be like. Um, so I turned up and it was your your usual mix of sort of esoteric characters from the 40K scene. Um, but it was great fun. You know, it was a very casual atmosphere. Uh, my first game playing in literally, I think, two editions, I managed to beat the guy I was playing against. And I was very surprised about that because I didn't have a clue how the balls even were. Yeah. Um, fortunately, like from third edition to through to seventh, the core mechanics stayed very similar. So even though I was like, all right, no idea what, whether a plasma cannon was better than a lance cannon in that edition, but, you know, I still knew how to move, still knew how ballistic skills work and all that sort right. of stuff. So, yeah. Um, and then my, my second game I played against. A lovely guy I'm still friends with. He absolutely smashed me. And the joke being, of course, you know, he turned up um, to play somebody he thought was going to be experienced. And I turned up for my second game in two editions and he absolutely <laughs> destroyed me. So, um, But for me, as I guess a person, as well as a player, um, I'm a competitive person. I enjoy playing um, with the intent to win in each game. And, and then I enjoy the sort of metagaming of. Tournaments in terms of designing your army not just to be one specific player or army but to try to win over the course of six seven games or whatever it is. Um, and I like the dynamism that um, the competitive scene brings, um, in ter- to the game specifically. You know, it, it, it forces you to stay on top of all the rules, which means that you're constantly thinking about the game in different ways. Yeah, it wouldn't be the case if you just had your 2000 points of space marines and bought another unit whenever one was released for your faction. In the competitive scene, you have to be thinking about how your faction changes even when something's released that isn't remotely related to them. So I like that. And then the, all the social stuff comes on top of that. It's like the huge added benefit and it's something that I'm particularly familiar with um, and it's close to my attention all the time now because of what I do with my events. But for me, it's like the competitive scene oh, for 40k for and particularly the event side of that, because you can be a competitive player without going to any events. Um, but those two things in combination, they they like they're like a force multiplier for your enjoyment of the hobby. They, they, it's like a, a step change in how much um fun you can extract from a hobby that you already have by yeah. going to these events, and you know you, the people you meet and the people you get into group chats with, and online, as you well know, you know the community that's built up around that side of Warhammer. I just think is amazing, and for me, that's why I always gravitate back towards that side of the game whenever I take a break.
0: It's interesting because the uh, I only got into the game kind of at the end of 7th edition, and at that time, tournament play had kind of a bad reputation, or maybe it was just coming out of having a bad reputation, and GW was getting back into engaging properly with fans or buyers or whatever. And there is still a lingering feeling among some parts of the community that tournament players are all kind of jerks and, you know, win-at-all-costs kind of people, which is just not the case. And I agree with you 100%. It's a force multiplier for your enjoyment of the hobby in terms of just enjoying creating lists and enjoying that conversation with other people who also enjoy creating lists. And, you know, you've got a bunch of buddies and you bounce ideas off them and they send, you know, what they think and you kind of try things out at your at your club or against your friends in their garage or whatever it might be. And yet yeah, it, all, it all adds yeah, to the yeah. to different layers and flavours of, of different ways to enjoy it. Even for me, you know, when I've got a tournament coming up, it makes me paint my stuff, man, and it's great having a painted army on the shelf. It's That's kind of cool as well.
1: Yeah, I follow along on your Facebook of the, the progress you make on your army. <laughs> it was interesting to see a pop up or a Space Wolf.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Like I said, I haven't been in the game for that long, so I've kind of bounced around different, Different armies. I had Tyranids for about five minutes. I really enjoyed painting them, and then they were gone. So um, uh, uh, who are the big guns around at that time in the UK, uh, you know, when you're just kind of coming up through the ranks, or maybe even when you were getting back into it, into the competitive scene? Are there people you kind of look up to, or, the, or there are big names around at that time?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. That was something I was talking to um, my friend and the winner of the first ever LGT Comrade about, Um there seems to have been like a sort of generational change. And I feel like in the UK, we're going through the third one um, in terms of um, the community that seems to dominate the, the events um, with the great exception of your former guest, Manejima, there seems to have been in UK like a, a, talking about the last 10 years, yeah. like three guards. So there was um, one group of people that would be say 80% of the top 10 at most events, um, up until, I I would say, about 20, end of 2015, so the beginning of, oh no, end of 2016, so the very beginning of eighth. And so they really dominated in the the mechanics system that had been building up for 20 years, from third through to seventh. Um, And then something happened when we shifted to eighth, and there was sort of another generation of players that were doing really well, really keen, going to all the events. And there seems to be one happening at the moment as well. And I obviously see this through, Being so closely connected to all the data from the different events we run, I'm always looking at um, who's doing well. But to to name a few, um, let me let me start with the sort of the first one. So when I got back into like hardcore competitive gaming, and the same time I set up the LGT, was um, (laughs) in a sort of awkward way. I was scrolling through Bella Losells, and given um, um, his history of the LGT, now it's a bit funny, but it was the Alex Harrison one. Um, so I saw it online. I was reading the, the Bella Los souls article and, um, I found out he was a Brit. I was like, Oh, this is awesome. So, um, that was the, he was one of the strongest players in the world that year. Um, it was the same year that, um, Josh Roberts was basically winning every event. He was captain of team England and is now co-captain for about 10 years. Um, his brother, Nathan is also a very strong player. Um, and then uh, Anthony Chu is the current co-captain. These guys have these these um, this group of players that were very very strong, um, but primarily focused on what is now the WTC. Yeah. Um, so they would know each other much better than perhaps they would know the rest of the community because they were playing practice games against each other. Um, and some of them still continue to do well. Obviously, life changes for everyone. Anthony's had the baby, so he's playing less now than before. But. Um, they were the, the big names. Um, there was a big change sort of at the end of, end of seventh, and lo- lots of people, I think, were kind of shocked by how much the rules changed. Um, and we saw you know another another sort of wave of players come through. It, one of the guys that's been consistently performing throughout all these different things is, is, is as the guy I mentioned earlier, comrade. He won um, the LGT back when the weapons that were, didn't need line of sight from these um, forge-rolled LR tanks. Um, and he ended up playing his brother in the final uh, Who he's a twin but played his brother and who had a, I think a towner four draw so there's the period as you mentioned alluded to earlier of just four draw nonsense and then the players are like as you well know most of the players are fine so it, it tends to not be that the case that people are arguing all the time the problem is is when you have terrible rules that aren't FAQ'd properly which was the case back then um, you're bound to have more arguments than when you have clearer rules because you have to by definition, have an argument to discuss the best way to play those rules. Now, whether that's a toxic argument or a constructive one is a different thing, but there was just much more ambiguity in the game back then.
0: Right. Yeah, and I guess what I was alluding to wasn't necessarily the players, although I feel like there maybe were a handful, but I I didn't really know that phase of the game. People talk about the time where, the, where tournament play you know what, I just feel like tournament players get a bad reputation sometimes and some groups of the community hold on tight to that because maybe they don't even want to play tournaments and the way they tell themselves that that's okay is by saying tournament players are all horrible people but my experience of tournaments um, since I started playing them a few years ago is has, has only ever been good I, with maybe one or two exceptions, every game has been against a good person, we get on well, we just have fun and it's I'm not playing at top tables, but I'm just really enjoying the events, you know, it's so my event, my, I guess what I was saying is I feel like I hear that tournament play went through a rough phase, but I don't think we're there anymore. Or, or, you know, you're, you're a lot more closely connected with big tournaments and European events, you know, the real big names. What's your experience of, of where it's at now? Is it in a healthy place?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that would be an understatement. Um, in terms of you know what, what you're mentioning there, I think could be more correct. I think there's actually, in fact, I'm not, I think I know there is because I'm, 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 I see it every month. There's way more online toxicity about tournament players than there yeah. is toxicity at the tournament itself. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a paradox. Um, like for every one one person who who's maybe has a bad bad game, there's probably ten people just on the internet having a moan about it. And they've either they've been to one event ten years ago and had a bad experience and think that's the way everything is, um, or they've never been. Um, so, like I, I can tell you, like now, um, I have don't have it right in front of me because there's so few data points so I can remember them. The sportsmanship issues we've had from the last two sports uh, two super majors around. So, I ran um, the Leicester super major in December and the Coventry one in november so that was in total about 800 people playing five rounds each so what's that that's about 4,000 games or something like that now serious sportsmanship issues we had one um that was quite well discussed on the, at least the british social media sites in coventry um and oh, we had two in coventry neither of those were relating to um players arguing with each other they were relating to other, other aspects of the game um and then in Leicester, we had we had literally zero issues at all in Leicester, other than just rules. So I we had to clarify how rules were meant to be played. Yeah. So we're talking about four thousand data points and literally two issues. It's it's such a non like it it seems to be a narrative that's driven by people that don't have the personal experience to back it up.
0: It's the way social media works, right? If someone moans about something or has a photograph of maybe one thing and then they make a fuss about it. Forget about the fact that you've had 300 people have six games each over a couple of days, which I don't do maths very well, but that's just a lot of games. And one person has one bad experience in one of those games. And that's what'll blow up because people don't go online and say, here's a picture of my game and it was awesome and I had a great time. And then that doesn't get traction. What gets traction is complaints and moaning or potential drama that gets blown out of proportion uh, you know, that's that's what gets people wound up and fired up, whether or not they were there. In fact, in my research for this chat that we're having, I was going back through 2016, 2017, 2018 London GTs and just some of the feedback and some of the controversy, in inverted commas, and there was, I can't even remember which year it was, something happened around terrain and then someone made a comment and then someone literally posted on Reddit, I've never played at a tournament, but here's my opinion. <laughs> It was like, dude, can you not see what's wrong with that sentence?
1: It's self-destructive as well because, you know, the people that are going and getting the enjoyment out of the tournaments, they still go. So they're still, they're still involved in the scene. They're still having all the you know, as we began this conversation with, they're still extracting all that fun out of, out of this um, side of the hobby. It's self-destructive in so much as all that does is those people that are making those specific comments probably aren't going to come, but the people reading those are on the fence. So what it does is it inhibits the growth of the hobby and the growth of 40K generally as well as the tournament scene. Yeah. Um, Because those people are going to be less inclined to come. And I think, you know, while Games Workshop does many questionable things, um, I really think their slogan or, um, or catchphrase is completely on point. Right, So it's more Warhammer more often. And yeah. that's really at the bedrock of the forty k scene. you know it just you maybe you get one game a week if you're playing at a local club, but you can guarantee at a tournament you're going to get five. so you know this is the embodiment of that phrase. And when I see people online criticizing events that they've never been to and potentially convincing people that were thinking that they might want to go to not go, I feel like this is like the opposite of what um the community should be striving for. We should be striving right. for high quality events and as many people as possible to go to them
0: which is why i think it's important to have chats like this and other i know that lots of other podcasts uh and and battle report you know content creators are doing the same thing which is just trying to trying to up the positive a little bit uh so let's get back on let's get back on track You must have been pretty good at this um, this game when you were when you were playing, because you then became a play tester for Games Workshop. I really want to uh, have a quick chat about that if we can. The first mention I can find of you playtesting is in the lead up to Eighth Edition in twenty sixteen twenty seventeen. I didn't even I don't I don't even know if they were doing play testing before that. But is that is that when you started? And if it is, how did you get into that?
1: Yeah, I mean this is always a it's a difficult topic to discuss because it's very interesting for people. Um, but obviously the specifics of it are all covered by um, the various confidentiality agreements yeah, we have. So yeah. um, <laughs> let me try to in terms of how we get involved, that's actually a, um, a a fun story and an easy one to tell. Um I was doing a podcast interview like this. Um it was in the run up to the I think the first ever LGT or perhaps the second and talking about the event and somebody from games workshop actually was a, a listener of the podcast um and was working in the sort of nascent community team at the time because i think they were you know not really comparable to what they're doing now in terms of the content they're putting out um heard it and got in touch and he's like you know we're doing something we'd love you to be involved um and that's how i got involved and basically what that was was um, in the run-up tape edition, um, Games Workshop had a number of prominent tournament organisers um, involved in in the process of getting that ready, and um, it was a really special time because it was a beginning. It was a little community of people from around the world. You know, it was myself, um, Mike, who you obviously had on, and now works for Games Workshop, and obviously. Um, other prominent organisers from events that you probably can guess which ones. I don't want to say in case they haven't made it public, but, you know, it's all fairly uh, obvious if you connect the dots about who the groups were. And um, it was just a really special time. We all got to know each other. We were talking on group chats every day and on the phone every week or so when we were doing um, various projects. Um, And... uh, it was it was interesting to see, like you know, behind the curtain for a little bit of, yeah. um, you know, why you know why why people think something happens. You know, going back to the online discussion, why people think something happens, and then why it actually does happen. Now, obviously, I, you can't go out on the internet and tell people oh, no, that's not remotely true, but um, <laughs> this is how it really works. So you read it, in, it sort of, in this sort of bittersweet way because you're you're passionate about the game, you want it to be as good as possible, and then you finally figure out exactly why something happens the way it does and uh, you can't tell anyone, so it's a bit frustrating.
0: Yeah, that that behind the curtain thing is interesting too. And But my understanding from chatting to other people is, and uh, I think you'll be able to answer this safely without having to hand over your firstborn to a Games Workshop because of the contract, is that, uh, that no playtester either ever gets a view of the whole thing. You're playtesting a specific rule or maybe uh, interaction or, uh, you know, I don't know the specifics of the way it works, but you're not playtesting the game as a whole. You're playtesting a specific thing and giving feedback on that. Is that kind of roughly in the ballpark?
1: Um, well, I've been involved um, since since at least this iteration of playtesting began. Um, and it's changed fundamentally as you know, anyone that's involved in in business processes know that you have to be always updating them and changing them to make them work better. Um, so it's not been one way or the other in terms of my experience, it's been very much a case of, um, you know, different, different processes for different needs. So, um, you know, I can't give you an explicit example, obviously, um, but it's been a dynamic process.
0: Right. It must be pretty cool to see a thing you've been testing, though, then get released out into the public and see the reaction to it. You know, not from that core group that we've been discussing probably too much, but from the broader public and the tournament players, then, you know, getting feedback on something that you've known about for a little while.
1: Yeah, it was it was really fun um, when you first start to see, um, you know, obviously don't claim to be any more impactful than, than we are, but um, you know, when you first start seeing little bits of influence you've had um, coming to fruition, and then people celebrating those, and I think you know, obviously you want to interview me, but I think talking more at a more macro level, you know, you can see just in the health of the game, as you mentioned earlier, from seventh um, to now, it's significantly better as a game itself. Yeah. Um, so the fact that it coincides with playtesting being ramped up to such a degree that it has been. I think can only be, uh, leave one conclusion to be drawn.
0: How hard is it to keep things secret, though? That's um, you know that's one because it well, has for to. Me it's, it's,
1: <laughs> for me, it's very easy because I have a stake in the game, right? So most <laughs> average players, um, you know, if they break their NDA, they just get kicked off the team or whatever. Um, it's very difficult for Games Workshop, you know, it's mega company, to sue an individual, um, and I don't think they would do that anyway. So they just get the boot. Um, now, for me, it's a completely different thing, right? I have a business in um, within the Warhammer space, um, and even though obviously my playtesting arrangement is personal rather than the corporate to um, corporate, it would be a disaster for me uh, from a business point of view um, to ever to ever breach um, my NDA, and so it's never been remotely challenging at all to keep my lips shut um (laughs)
0: that's (laughs) that's
1: obviously not true for everyone um because obviously there's there's leaks every now and then but they tend to be very rare you know you think about how much content comes out every year and then how rare the leaks are um i think you know most people have um you know the integrity to honor their words um so for me it's been um Quite easy yeah. the more more interesting the challenging thing is obviously in conversations like this with you're meeting fellow hobbyists who are passionate and want want you know they don't want to push you but they want to ask the details, so you ought to be like, well, I can't talk about this in in any level of detail um here's what I can say, and still to try to make it interesting so it's actually uh <laughs> A bit
0: of a, a bit of an oxymoron. Yeah. Uh, All right, we'll, I, we'll I, move we'll move away I because of. I feel like I feel yeah. like every question I ask you, are kind of checking around you for broken glass and and hoping not to walk on it. So we'll just yeah we'll just step a step away from it. It is when I went we had Mike on and uh, after I posted the the interview, I got a bunch of messages saying you should have asked more about playtesting. You should have asked this. You should have asked that. And I wanted to say to them in a similar vein to the way I'm sure you want to say to people sometimes, I wanted to say. I can't. I literally was yeah. told before we chatted with Mike, don't talk about this and don't talk about that. And, you know, he's a lovely man and he would have, he, he was being as, as generous as he could, but there are some areas he just can't go. So let's move away from that and get into organising events. How did you slide into, you know, doing your TO stuff?
1: Yeah, um, it's it's been a while now since it happened. So I have to always try to refresh where where i was at the time um it kind of links into that story earlier i was talking about you know checking Bella Los and reading about british people doing well um at the lvo and that sort of inspiring me to get back into compared 4k in a sort of more hardcore way as a player um and when i did, went through that process you know i was looking for events to to go to um and was going to as many as i could one to a month most of the time um but like I said, I'd read about LVO and I couldn't find one in England. So I'm like, where are all these big events? You know, when I left the competitive 40k scene prior to, to that, then there was loads of big events or what I thought were big events. And then I realized actually that they, they weren't big. I was just a small person back then. You know, I was obviously right. less experienced in the world and not physically smaller as well. So I seemed bigger. But um, we didn't have events that were comparable to. Um, even, you know, a 250-player event like um, Adepticon Singles, you know, which isn't particularly massive. But by today's standards, but by those standards back then, it was huge. So um, it was set up really as a response to to that yearning. Um, I wanted the event to exist in order to attend it. Um, Obviously, I attended it as an organizer, and I've always sort of jokingly said, you know, the goal. My goal for the LGT is to win it, uh, to grow it to the point where you know we can have uh, it being financially successful enough that there's somebody you know reliable on site to be running it, and that I'm basically just a figurehead um, <laughs> rather than down in the down in the down in the trenches yeah. um, or underneath tables rolling maps around, which is unfortunately still common. But um, yeah, so that was really how it's set up. Um, what it's grown into is. It, Different mapping entirely, but um, it was set up as a response to customer demand, and the customer I knew best was obviously myself. So that was really what motivated it to get
0: going. So uh, you know, you're you're in there. 2016 is the very first. The London Warhammer Gaming Guild uh, held an event called the London GT 2016, uh, and it was pretty big, even if, even in its first year. Is that is that fair to say? Um, I don't want to say 250, but it must have been around the 200 mark.
1: No, no. Um, it, first year we had space for two hundred, so it's always a challenging thing to discuss the sizes of events when you're doing the social media posts and all that stuff because um, you don't know how big the event's going to be until day one. Uh, all you all you really know is how much space you've got um, and budget for terrain and mats and that sort of stuff, um, and you know what your targets are. Um, so. Uh, year one, we were, you know, comparatively big. I think we ran, uh, we sold like 100 tickets or something for year one, had something like 88 people turn up, um, which is tiny now. But um, at the time, it already put us, I think, joint big largest event in the country in year one. Um, and that was um, a really fun year. It was held in an old Victorian exhibition hall in, in central London. Um, if anyone's ever visited Um, the British Museum in Bloomsbury. It was about a block away from there. So it was like absolutely central um, in a beautiful building. And um, it went well, but it was the first event I'd ever organized. Um, So obviously the problem with events is every time I run one, you learn something, but when you're only running one a year, your opportunities to learn things are limited. So it went comparatively well um, for a first-time event, but in comparison to... um, how smooth we've got all our processes and systems running now it was (laughs) seems in my head like it was a bit of a debacle but um, yeah it was fun Uh,
0: we got to talk about 2018 and I I know that 2016, 2017 as you said you kind of doing one a year it's hard to learn it's the same as playing games if you're only playing every now and then it it's harder to learn but when you're playing five six games in a weekend you learn much quicker but 2018 there were there were issues and we're going back to our earlier conversation probably 90% of the people that were there had a great time but there were some there was some blowback some online drama around the terrain particularly uh, which then probably led to some some you know good results in the end. But uh, tell me about going through that as a as a TO when you read that sort of stuff online. That must be very challenging.
1: Yeah, um, that's actually a, a really good question because you know the, I think the issue itself has been talked to death. Uh, most people are familiar with it by now, but um, no one's ever really asked me how it impacted me personally or as a TO, and it's a big big challenge because you know we anyone that's ever ran an event like this knows it's basically one or two highly motivated people and then some support from the local community um so the person who's like in the weeds with you know doing everything um (laughs) you're not going to have a social media person that's separate from the organizational stuff who's able to like filter out the emotional impact of the stuff so you have to be reading it all because, number one, it's feedback and you need the feedback in order to, to know what you need to improve upon. Um, number two, like you need to be putting out some sort of response, um, you know, so that people understand what happened and why. Um, but you, number three is like, you know, you need to recover as a person um, psychologically from what's a very stressful period. And the problem is you don't have the difference, the gap in time, right? Because you need to be doing all of the one and what I was just discussed there, one and two, when number three is just telling you to take a break. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 2018, it was hard. Um, it was after we got through the, like, the initial first couple of days after the event where I was still trying to like put out fires and, um, you know, give people an explanation about, you know, what explicitly happened and why. Um you know, it was me thinking about do, do I want to be doing this again, um, given like everything that went wrong, um, even if I fix it all and every, if next year goes well, this is something that I think is worthwhile, um, given that the response that I've been experiencing. Um, and I, I, I took a bit of time away from it and had uh, some advice and some conversations with players that. I'm considered close friends, but also are compared to 40k players. So I had a bit of a view into both my personal life as well as the event itself. Um, And I got a couple of pieces of really good advice. Um, Oh, I would say one piece of good advice and one one person that was very helpful. So the good advice was uh, not not necessarily advice, but the guy said, um, I would want to do it again just to show people that I could. So he basically was saying like, right. You're a professional project manager. Like you can do these these things correctly. Um, The world thinks you can't. So show them that you're a competent guy. Um, And that really sort of hit my um, like I said earlier my competitive side of my thing. Like like I know I can do this correctly. The things that went wrong. Like I I got to the point where I tried how they went wrong and what the solutions were going to be and that sort of stuff. Right. So that was a a motivating factor for me. Um, He was very helpful in terms of getting LGT back. Back, you know still being a thing um and then the other chap uh, gave me um just some basic help when I was like you know uh, i'm thinking about doing it again but I don't really want to go do x y and z tasks because uh, like i was saying a second ago about the emotional impact it had on my on me and uh, he sort of got got those off my plate for me he was like yeah don't worry I'll sort those out so he did those came back with some of that information and as a result we were able to run or i was able I was able to um, have the, the passion still to run in 2018, um, uh, 2019 rather, and um, as a result, you know the LGT has gone from strength to strength ever since.
0: I want to so, talk about I want um, to talk about that comeback as well because actually that's interesting. They and I love that you're able to, to share that with us. It is if I had and a bunch of friends and I. Uh, just getting into organising events here in New Zealand on a much smaller scale but we're also a much smaller place so uh, it is one of those things you actually and people need to understand you're putting it all out there you know you're working yourself ragged for an event the size that you're talking about in 2018 you had hundreds of people there and that means hundreds of tables worth of terrain are needed and hundreds of mats and hundreds of tabletops and hundreds of just, you know, you've got to think about prizes. You've got to think about the people. You've got to think about the food. You've got just everything, everything. And you work so hard to make it as good as you can. No one sets out to stuff things up and something went wrong. And then when you read about it and the comments that people were making, I don't know that I would have been able to uh, come back without the help that you had from those two specific people you mentioned. Having someone to... Having someone specifically maybe to read the comments afterwards, keep you away from that and tabulate information in a more useful way would be great. But the comeback was really good because 2019, I was reading reviews of that and they were all really positive, especially Goonhammer did one. They came to the 2019 event and they raved about it. And that must, is going from where you were in 2018 to getting to reading those things in 2019, that must have been so uh, good for you.
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was hard to enjoy in the moment because obviously after the experience previous year, I was very much on the knife edge the whole time trying to make sure everything went well. Um, it, from, it, it's, so, it's so funny, you know, the player's experience of the gaming is, they think like, you know, running the tournaments, like the 4k specific stuff um, around the tournament, you know, officiating some rules, disagreement or whatever, is the, is the job. Um, and it is for like a 30-player event or something like that. But you know, when we're talking 1,000-plus players um, across the different game systems, that goes, that goes down and down and down. So it's like 10, less than 10% of the job. Um, so you're always thinking about all these other things that are sort of semi-behind-the-scenes. And um, that event went well. I was absolutely thrilled up with how it went. And um, I think the word really got out after that because, you know, obviously the year just gone was our, our biggest year ever. And I think lots of people that um, came in 2018 and you know, wanted to see a good recovery before they wanted to, to buy another ticket. And that's obviously what they saw in 2019. 2020 was obviously COVID, and then 2021 was absolutely huge. We we, we grew massively. So And that year went great too. So I'm, I'm really thrilled with how things are going. Um, what was particularly interesting from my side of things was like the, I guess it speaks to... Um, Maybe something in humans, generally, or definitely in my personality, which is the the buzz of it going well faded so quickly, and then all I could think about for the next six months was like the tiny little things that went wrong yeah. <laughs> um, that I need to fix the next time. So you know, I'm a, I guess I'm a perfectionist in that regard, and that you know, I what, what I think it's a good idea to blow some some problems out of proportion and to make mountains out of molehills because it motivates you to fix those things. And even if they're minor things that need fixing, it still increases the overall quality of the event. What what we want to do, you know, what the mission is is to to, to put on the highest quality possible events for the most number of people possible and to do that in a sustainable and viable way. So, you know, we can't be just making it, you know, gold-plating everything because we'll run once and then we'll be bankrupt and then we'll never run again. (laughs) So the goal is, you know make them as good as possible make them as big as possible and make them sustainable and sort of self self-fulfilling as possible
0: yeah 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 um so is this a full-time gig have you are you able to ditch your proper job or are you doing this you know part-time yeah
1: yeah um kind of so um not so much the LGT the LGT wouldn't wouldn't do a full-time job or even a part-time job it takes it takes, it takes hundreds of hours and becomes you know Very much full time, but over the course of the year, it's it's not enough work um, and doesn't make enough money. Um, You know, I'm a Londoner; um, (laughs) you can't really survive on the amount of money a tournament makes. Um, But the broader organisation that we've set up um, now—you know, running a super major every month, pretty um, much—is a significant greater workload. So, um, I—I was kind of like a freelance management consultant um as my my professional career so it was had quite a lot of control over when and when i wanted to work um so i would uh, just tend to like not work for two months while i was focusing on the lg team and um as these other super majors have grown um i would say at the moment i'm like 75 percent of the time i focused on on running these events um wow. and 25 percent is like <laughs> If we have, a, if we because you know these events, they even the ones that go great from like a, a tournament point of view, some of them are financial disasters. So like, if we have a couple bombs uh, in a row, then I need to sort of top up the <laughs> top up the bank balance a bit. Yeah, then I have yeah. to go back to the day job for a couple of months. So I get a I get a management consulting gig for a few months, um, and that that sort of keeps me running. But um, no, it's um, it's very much full time ish uh, because if I wanted to. Um, well, it, it, if, if we wanted to go full-time it would give us some extra hours left over and as a result of that you know that would enable us to grow much much quicker you know, right. with new projects and new ideas for, for you know extra stuff we've got going um
0: it's a balancing act um yeah exactly it's it's hard because you know
1: it's it's you kind of want to go full-time um But the the events, you don't know how successful they're going to be until the day of them, but you need to launch them six months in advance. So the financial uncertainty is just massive. So you're always sort of playing this game of chicken of, like, when do you you choose to go um, as hard as possible?
0: And so now you've got uh, Coventry, Leicester, Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, you've got, like, you mentioned one a month for a period of time. You've just got these massive events. Are you surprised how how big this has gone and how quickly it has? And I'm wondering also whether COVID and timing played a role there, just because people kind of came out of this wanting games, wanting tournaments, and that which kind of played nicely into your "Let's do this."
1: Yeah, it's actually it was, um, very much consumer led. So um, when we were coming out of COVID, I was seeing LGT ticket sales spike um, and lots of people in different group chats I was in, you know, saying, no, it's a shame that we only have one of these massive events a year. Wouldn't it be so nice if there was two? Um, (laughs) So we launched the second one. And it was very much speculative. I was like, all right, um, we could do another one. Um, Let's see how it goes. And it sold out very, very quickly. I was like, well, this is fantastic. It's it's great that... um, the enthusiasm wasn't just hyperbole. it wasn't just people talking, but actually the consumers followed through in what they were saying and bought tickets. So, we launched another one, um, and that sold out even quicker. And, and we basically just was thinking, okay, well, we can keep doing this, um, in you know, semi indefinitely, we'll see how quickly they sell. Um, because we have the you know, the processes are set up now. You know, we've got all the term, we've got the mats, we've got all the you know, the registration process started. Um, let's see, see. See uh, how many we can do, and it really evolved from that. So I think the, the point here is my inclinations, uh, not inclinations, motivations for the LGT were sort of fulfilled. We um, we we wanted to put this massive 40k tournament on the map, um, you know, as a comparable you know, European based version of LVO. We we done that. You know, we had 800 players uh, buy tickets this year, and the event went great. Um, what these other events were really had to be different in my mind. Um, so I began thinking about them in a slightly different way. And if you read the sort of like mission statements on two different organization websites, we've got so the LGT site as opposed to the tournaments.com site. Um, the Wilhammer Tournaments one, is, it's, its real goal is very different. So what I want to do with that is I want to put on high, like, high quality standardized events so that people know what they're buying. Like when you go into a Starbucks, you know, you're going to get high quality or medium quality coffee um, anywhere in the world. So I want to, want to do that. And then I want to make them accessible. So the goal is like, well, I still want everyone as many people as possible to come to the LGT because it's supposed to be the calendar highlight. But what about the other rest of the year? Like most people don't want to drive six hours across the country. Um, well, at least six hours in the UK as opposed to Australia, where I guess that's just from one city to another. But um, I want to put them on people's doorsteps. I want to make them accessible to people. Um, and it's not just like, oh, I'm going to go to my local tournament. It's not as good as the one that's five hours away, but I don't want to drive five hours. I want to put a really good tournament on door- on the doorsteps of everyone in the country. So the goal f- for, for this sort of growth thing um, is much more about... Um, the year-round experience for our attendees and for the community. Like I want to provide um, enjoyment throughout the year. But the LGT is very much about providing enjoyment on the day. Yeah. Um, whereas the, the the goal for the other organisation is much more holistic.
0: I feel like you need you need one of the events, and it's obviously the LGT, to become this iconic thing, like like the LVO. Uh, for someone like me on the other side of the world, it gets put on the the list of, you know, the bucket list. I, there are some things in the world that I will want to do before I go, and the LVO is one of them, and the LGT is one of them. And it's just kind of, you know, it becomes this thing. And uh, while we're on the LGT, I, look, I know we're we're kind of pushing you pushing your time out now. There's a couple of questions I need to finish up with. One is, I can hear something in the background, and I'm not sure if it's someone whistling at you as you walk along the street or if you've got a bird, just so our listeners know what that little whistle is, what's going on?
1: Yeah, I've got a a bird decided to sit outside my window, Uh, so I quite like wildlife, so I'm (laughs) going to leave it there rather than shoot it away, but um, yeah, he he makes noises.
0: (laughs) It's so good. The other question I had was, do you miss playing events? Don't you want to strap the boots on and get back out there?
1: Yeah, I absolutely massively do. Um, I'm still a very enthusiastic player and I still have aspirations of grandeur, even though they're probably misguided at this point. Um the biggest issue I have is um obviously the events we run in the UK are now the biggest, um and most common. So I it's I don't think there's um I don't think it's morally correct to play in the events that you run. I think there's a conflict of interest there, so I obviously won't ever do that. Um but I am still an active player. Um, last year, I played in the Gibraltar GT and went five and one. Um, I went to a couple of RTTs and went three and zero. Um, so I'm still playing. I'm just not playing in as much as I would like. Um, heading to LVO in a couple of weeks. Um, got a new army with the painter at the moment, so hopefully we'll um, take that out to grand effect. But I, I'm. You know, when I was at the beginning of the LGT, it was very much a case of like, I was, I think the year where I went to ETC, Nova, and two other events, I did five weeks, four tournaments, two of which were, you know, mega ones. It kind of burnt me out. So yeah. now I'm more like, yeah, you know, I'll try and get like four, five, six tournaments in a year if I can. That would be like a good year for me.
0: Yeah. Uh, winner tickets on sale for the LGT. The
1: LGT goes on sale on the 28th of January at 2 p.m. UK time, and right. they'll be available from uk. All right, uk
0: is where you get your tickets. It is – it's such – what kind of numbers are you you're hoping for, looking for, thinking will be there this year?
1: Um, so just for 40K, I mean, um, the convention itself will probably be over 2,000. But for 40K, I would love to hit 1,000 mark. Um, wow. This year we did 800. <laughs> wow. Um, and, yeah, 20% growth, 25% growth would be amazing. Now, obviously, we have a lot of dropouts. So when I say those numbers, they tend to be sales rather yeah. than um, you know fin- people to finish. Um, but that would be my goal. And I mean, Frankie and I had a bet about six years ago about who would be the first to a thousand. Um, unfortunately, he's beaten me um, by by a year or so. But um, you know, it was very much a motivating factor for me. So you know, shout out to Frankie, and you know, it's been a very fun. Uh, transatlantic competition we've been running.
0: Yeah, yeah, They're nice people, Frankie and Reese. Um, so, listen, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and all the best for the LGT and for all of the other stuff. I imagine my uh, Canadian friends and, and American friends must be extremely envious of the idea that uh, people can drive an hour, no matter where they are in the UK, you can drive an hour or two and be at a at a massive event. Uh, because I know Canadians can drive five, six, seven, eight hours to get to any event at all so this is it's a big deal you know and it's a great thing for the community in the uk particularly um so good luck man and thanks thanks for what you're doing and thanks for chatting to me i appreciate it thanks for having me. so tickets are on sale now as this episode comes out for the lgt a big thank you to zach becker for being our guest this week and a quick note that frankie and reese who we mentioned at the end of that chat are the organisers of the huge LVO, the guys who started Frontline Gaming. Okay, that's it. If you're still listening, then a reminder to go like the 40K Game Changers page on Facebook for updates on future guests. Until next time, I'm Steve Joel, and this has been 40K Game Changers.